Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do follow and share it with a friend. And a five-star review will always help in a big way wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you really enjoy the episodes, then please do consider becoming a patron of the show. Finally, sign up to our free monthly newsletter, giving you some much-needed updates in the world of adventure. Just use the link in the description. Today's guest is mountain climber and explorer Benita Norris. And I remember I was the only, I was, you know, the first person to reach the summit that morning. My team, the rest of my team were behind me and I pulled myself up over this edge and the sun just hit me in the face and it was just stunning. And I actually remember like screaming with joy and I remember radioing down to uh, our logistics guy, Henry Todd at base camp and um, just saying to him like, oh, Henry, I wish you could see this. It's, it's so beautiful. And he said, Benita, I'm right there with you. And I just was like, oh, this is the best, you know, it was the best moment of my life, really, just to kind of be up there after everything that I'd been through. And then to have a really tough expedition, um, it was so special. Author of The Girl Who Climbed Everest, which is a fantastic read, by the way, so I recommend you go and give that a look after this. We are going to talk about her setting the goal of Everest and making everything happen around it in between, including another 8,000 meter peak, climbing after Everest. We talk about the North Pole and the, just the mindset and the inspiring ways that she's overcome the challenges leading up to those summits. So I really, really hope you enjoy it diving in and let's get straight into it. So Benito, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi Chris, yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. No, honestly, it's it's my pleasure to, to have you here. It, it, you've you've got quite a fantastic story, a, a bucket load of ex, um, experience after you decided to, to take the plunge, which I think, I think we'll get into uh, in a moment. But yeah, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you here. I mean, we might as well start off talking about the biggest thing which is Everest how mm-hmm. that was like your first goal not the first peak but the first goal how did all that come about for you um it all came about um really out of the blue I was at uni and I went to a lecture about Everest and I wasn't particularly keen on this lecture uh, I think I uh, sort of went because my friend said there would be some hot guys there or something um, but I just completely fell in love with uh, this story of, of these two guys that had climbed Everest. And I, I listened as they t- spoke about seeing the curvature of the earth from the top of the world. And I, I thought that was the most amazing thing. And that was it. That was the moment. Um, turned my life upside down as soon as I left that room and taught myself how to climb and rest is history. Yeah, because that, that's... That's the one thing I, I think is quite admirable from all this is, is you didn't just get into mountaineering and you thought, you know what, maybe I can do Everest. You, you, you chose Everest and then learned how to do it. Uh, did Getting into that training, what motivated you and to stay focused on starting the, the training and sticking to Everest? Was it the imagery of the curvature? Yeah, exactly that, actually. It was that this was such 
an exciting and terrifying and uh, it, it, this dream was so visceral and, and so impossible and so amazing and, and, and yet so terrifying at the same time. I couldn't get that out of my head. And I think that's the important thing about goals really is like when they're really terrifying and really exciting in equal measure, that's when you, that's when they get you out of bed in the morning. And that was it. You know, it was, it was exciting and ridiculous enough that oh, I was, I was in its grasp and um, it was easy to be motivated by something like that. Yeah. And I remember you, you said in your book um, that you, you met with, was it Kenton you met with? Um, Kenton Cool, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't remember. There were two speakers and I couldn't remember off the top of my head, which one you sat with, but he basically said, just break it down to manageable bites. Yeah. And I was wondering when you were doing those very first stages of climbing, was there ever a moment when you were on the mountain where you thought, oh, I've just, I've just put that to use. Was, was there anything that you remembered right from the early points? All the time. I mean, even, even to this day, it's something that, um, I, and I think, I think we all do it in everyday life. So before I was a climber, I was a runner and I had run the London Marathon um, the year that I went to that lecture. So I was fresh out of the London Marathon. And when you're a runner and you're a beginner runner, like I was, you tell yourself to get to the next lamppost. You, it's all about stepping stones, you know, and then you get to that and then you get to the next bit. So climbing didn't feel much different. Um, but my, uh, to my astonishment, straight away, you feel like the steps of massive leaps but actually very quickly you're not climbing on Snowden anymore you're climbing Mont Blanc in the Alps and it's like oh that's a massive looks like a massive step but really these these mountains the skills that you use on them all you learn you can learn and um, depending on how you do it fairly quickly and so the the acceleration is really fast and that again in itself is quite motivating. And I imagine the, the, the two years passed by in quite a flash just because of what, everything you were doing to train. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was finishing a degree uh, in media arts at the time. I was in my final year. And what else? I, um, I also had, a, had to find a job to pet. You know, climbing is really expensive. All the travel, all the kits. Um, it's not a cheap. Uh, it's not like running, which is free. You just need a pair of trainers. So I had to find a job, I was finishing a degree, I was training, I was not a very fit person, um, a bit overweight and things like that. And, uh, and learning this, this whole new sport as well, not just the physical fitness, but the actual climbing skills. So yeah, it was, it was <laughs> really full on two years, probably um, in some ways like the most stressful experience. And also when you have, when you want to climb Everest, you have to find a lot of money. So I'd be you're rich and you can pay for it or you have to do the route that I did, which is find it from somewhere. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a roller coaster. I, I needed a holiday in the Bahamas actually, not Everest at the end of all that work. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's not much practice to be done there though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, from, from doing this podcast for a while, there's, we've had a few people on the show who have climbed Everest and everyone seems to have a, a, a different, whether it's minor or major, they all seem to have a different experience of it. Uh, who have you had on? Sorry, you don't mind me asking. Uh, John Gupta was the main, main one. Uh, mm-hmm. He's done, he's done yeah, um, and South Coal. Um, at, yeah. yeah, in the North. Yeah, <laughs> everyone says that. <laughs> we all know each other, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone says that they know John. That's quite funny. But um, 
but everyone seems to have a different experience yeah. doing it. And with you, naturally, that was also a, a completely um, different, well, I mean, similar to other people in many ways, but a different experience. Did you want to chat through the highlights of climbing it and, and on the way back down too? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I, it's funny, this, was it this? No, it was last year, actually. Um, Ant Middleton, the SAS mm, hard yeah. man, and Ben Fogel, the sort of vet TV, you know, yeah. happy puppy man, both went to Everest, both climbed at the same time, both made a documentary about it. So they were climbing it with their own camera crews. And they both came back and made a show which went out on TV. And it was hilarious to see Ant's view of Everest versus Ben's view of Everest considering they were there at the exact same time and so that that your point there just really reminded me of that and it is so true we all go for different reasons and we come back having had completely different experiences for me I was definitely I, I could sympathize with Ant's view of Everest but I was more Ben's view which was that you get into the history of that mountain I had read all of the books the memoirs like Edmund Hillary's Chris Bonington's, um, Ed Vistas, you know, all of those books. And you read about the Western Coombe and the Kumbu Icefall and the South Col and climbing to the balcony and the, you know, and, and then when, you're, when you actually find yourself there, it's like living in this dream world that you've imagined every night in your, as you go to sleep for two years and it's real. And to me, every time I woke up on the mountain or even at base camp as you come to your senses you can hear and you can smell and just that moment before you open your eyes in the morning of just like I'm on Everest and Mm. it just felt magical every single day I I felt I felt like the luckiest person in the world to be there so yeah I mean some of some of the highlights were just the beauty of the mountain especially the sunrises especially in the ice fall because the, uh, we would start climbing through the ice fall from base camp at about four o'clock in the morning and it's just this jumbled glacier, a frozen waterfall basically. Yeah. So it's a crashing down all this ice, moving very slowly and it reflects all of the morning light as the sun rises. So this ice world becomes like a blaze of color. It's just stunning. So there's just moments like that. And I remember climbing up towards the summit and seeing the stars um like it was like you're sort of sitting on one of saturn's rings looking out of the galaxy you're not looking up at the stars anymore you're in the stars and looking down and seeing a thunderstorm happening beneath us like when have you ever seen a thunderstorm and look down upon it you know uh i i had the sense all the time that human beings just aren't supposed to be here and that was quite a powerful feeling as well like the things that have gotten us here are technology and teamwork really like you know that's an amazing thing in itself and I just yeah I just most of the time was just blown away by by those little things um the tough bits or the, the difficult bits were I mean really I think you block a lot of it out I had I had quite a tough time coming down the mountain yeah. but on the way up I think yeah the the, the they're, they're just they just weren't on other expeditions I've had a way worse time uh, with, you know, things like avalanches and just bad conditions and stuff. But that year on Everest in 2010, thankfully, we were quite blessed. And and so I think even when things got, got quite bad, like the suffering, yeah. you know, bad stomach when you get, you know, the runs or whatever, it's like really not pleasant. But 
you just always keep yourself in check because you are on Everest. And, and um, I think probably the most frustrating things were the things that Ant Middleton spoke about in his documentary, which was just people there that had no clue what they were doing. Mm. And that felt quite, quite, it felt like an insult on the mountain in some ways that I felt like I was very new to climbing. But I had done, in my mind, I'd done everything I could, you know, gone with the best team that I could, climbed as many mountains as I could, been to the death zone before, been to the Himalayas before. And then yet there were some people there that had never worn crampons and didn't know how to tie basic knots, you know, and that just felt really frustrating a lot of the time because they would get in the way and they were slow and unfit. And But yeah, I mean... You said... Um... One thing I've read from from your blog, actually, which I thought was a good idea, was that uh, perhaps making it so that to climb Everest, to gain your permit, you've already must have done one 8,000 metre peak. Yeah, I think that that's, it'd be so good for tourism uh, in Nepal because there's, there's so much emphasis on the Kumbu Valley, whereas uh, the Manaslu region, um, other parts of, of the country would get so much more traffic if you had to climb a seven or 8,000 metre peak first. Mm. And it's just beneficial to to everyone that you've got more experience. I, I just can't see the downsides to it. If you're too lazy to go on an 8,000 metre peak or a 7,000 metre peak to begin with, then why are you even on, on Everest? Mm. And you've kind of edged your way over to sort of drive and motivation there. And there's, there's a quote you had when you were running uh, that I read in the, in the book which was your friend turned around to you and said, this is where you were doing a hill, basically a big hill run. Yeah. And your friend turned around and said, this is where you choose to either be a runner or a very good runner. And yeah, it was my stepdad. Yes, yeah. And, yeah. and I was wondering, did you have any moments like that? And in all of your mountain climbs, have you ever had any moments like that where you basically thought, you know, this is where you either, you know, I'm either a mountaineer or a very good mountaineer and you just got to dig in and go? so many times you have to mm. have conversations with yourself like that. And yeah, yeah I mean, I, I couldn't probably pick out one. I think yeah. um, the, the time when I most recently was on K2, and we got to uh, Camp 2, can't remember the height, I think it was like 6,000. I think 6,600, I think was what, what 6,600 that I got, was it Camp 2 or Camp 3? We got to, I can't remember. Um, and I, I, I had a, a swelling on the brain. I had really serious altitude sickness. And um, our, one of our team was a doctor and he was just like, you have to go down the mountain as soon as possible. And at that point, I remember thinking, I can't stand up, let alone on K2. And I remember stepping out of the tent just being overwhelmed by the hundred footsteps that it would take to get onto, you know, the route from, from where our tent was. And you, that's the moment you have that pep talk with yourself. It's like, no one can do this for you. This is when you are either, you know, a, a crap mountaineer or you, or you do the right thing so that your teammates don't have to kind of deal with you. And you do this by yourself. It's no, you are no one else's responsibility on this mountain. So get your ass down. Mm. And that was the most recent time. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, you're in the groove and you're doing it. But yeah, definitely. It's mostly when you're transitioning from the tent out onto the mountain, I find that's like when the pep talks happen, <laughs> because I think it tends to be the case when you're actually out there climbing that, Things happen so fast often 
that you don't have time to think. You don't really have a lot of time to um, be scared, you know, if it's a really serious situation. And the, I, I think I'm, I think perhaps one thing I am fairly good at in real situations like that is staying quite calm and just getting, doing what needs to be done. But it's when you've been in the tent for a few hours or a night and you've let your mind kind of start to kick in mm. and, you know, it's all of those thoughts, that's when it gets tough. There's what you were saying there about responsibility as well. I mean, I mean what um, perhaps some listeners may not know, one of the more motivational things about all of this is that you actually overcame bulimia uh, before you got into all this and, mm. and it was overtaking you and I, I wanted to get some some more thoughts on something you wrote in the in the book which was that it wasn't your fault you had bulimia but it was your responsibility to to reclaim your life and I thought that was yeah really quite inspiring I mean it's similar lessons to have in the mountain I suppose in life I think mm. um was so many things happen to us which aren't our fault and yet they are our responsibility to overcome and I think that that's something that we are kind of losing in, in a very woke world is, is the fact that, yes, things aren't our fault, but you can't blame someone else all the time for it. We do have to decide to make that choice. Like, do, do I let this define me? Do I, even if, it's, even if I can't solve the issue of, of the, in the wider world, can I, can I make something of my life so I don't you know, have to deal with this? And that was it for me. The reason I got bulimia, I think, is because I grew up in a world of diet culture. Um, unfortunately, my parents had no idea that, you know, that they were on Weight Watchers. They were always buying diet Atkins foods. Atkins as well. That was, that yeah, was a thing exactly. at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. And we grew up with that. And we grew up, and I grew up with the size zero craze mm. that was in Heat magazine and things. And, you know, and any, any young impressionable girl would, would have issues with that. Oh, well, I did. And I know many friends did. Um, it's not our fault, but it's not our, it's our responsibility is in all of that. It's us. And so that was, that was the realization and it was a penny dropping moment. And it has definitely, um, did definitely define my whole approach, not just to recovering from an eating disorder, but then taking on Everest, mm. especially with the money thing. Cause you needed, I needed 50,000 quid to climb Everest at the, in the time that time 10 years ago mm. I was so I just felt like it's not fair you know I, I'm not I'm not a banker I'm not rich it's not fair that it's that much money but it's like well that's you know I've got to take responsibility for it it doesn't matter if it's fair the question is do you want to climb the mountain mm -hmm. if you do then you have to just find a way take responsibility so just to move it on into the North Pole which is another brilliant thing you've done <laughs> um I, I i don't know a lot about the north pole so this would be super fascinating to hear from you uh, how did that come about uh, year after everest right yeah so how it came about was um this sponsor uh, that supported me to go to everest um were, they took a huge risk on me on that first expedition they they really thought that it was not going to return anything but they got like over a million quids worth of free advertising from it when I reached the summit because it was all over the papers. And so then they were very keen for me to do another expedition. So straight away, they were like, what do you want to do? And I was like, um, go to the North Pole. And it, you know, it had never been a, a, a big ambition in the same way that Everest was, but I had also read a lot of books like Sir Ranulph Fiennes and um, Shackleton and Scott and all of that stuff. 
And it just felt like the natural next tick, if you like. And it, it definitely was more of a tick than, than anything else. Um, so I was very privileged, very lucky to have had that opportunity and embraced it. And I um, went the following year and we um, flew into a place called Camp Barneo, which is uh, an, uh, one degree from the North Pole. So it wasn't a full expedition, mm. but it was still, I think, eight days on the ice and um, very different to climbing, um, you know, in, in ways that I would never have anticipated until I was there. <laughs> but because, uh, you know, you kind of think, oh, I've been in minus 30, 40 degrees on Everest. Like, what can I, I'm good in cold weather. I can do this. And then <laughs> it's completely different what obviously what's different to the south pole is that it's just ice what were the risks involved and how did you mitigate them and what did you do when when the risks presented themselves well it is it is a shock when you step off the plane and you you step onto sea ice and you can hear the ice screeching underneath your skis you can literally hear the depth of it. It's only a few feet. And um, underneath that is the, is the Arctic Ocean. Uh, so it's a, it's a real shock. And we, there's a lot of trust involved in... Um, we had a team leader, a guy called Alan Chambers, who had done the first um, across from Canada, some, from some point far away in Canada, all the way to the North Pole in winter. So I trusted him that he would uh, he would actually like know where it was safe to step mm. and um, yeah uh, but he's still sort of like are you sure are you sure um, and the ice was melting uh, often we'd be on like um, one part of the ice and then uh, we'd have to be crossing what's called a lead and the ice would then start to suddenly move at a rate of knots really fast and then the, the team would be separated and you'd have to try and meet up again those were kind of sketchy moments but probably um not for alan our leader because he'd seen everything but mm. for us it was like okay <laughs> this is freaky the other thing is just it's so much more cold than than the mountains even on a sunny day it's, you're still getting your eyelashes freeze um if you've got any kind of facial hair girls <laughs> anything even like a little bit of hair on your top lip it will freeze and you'll look ridiculous <laughs> it's really cold and you, you know you're always wearing mittens and stuff so you often using your, your teeth to kind of open packets and turn things and the amount of times I got my lips skin stuck to like my camera or a piece of metal or something like that and then just rip the skin off you know you just can't all of the time you're constantly battling this really intense cold um, and uh, so yeah it's really different but the, probably the main thing for me was just the fact that Every day we skied on flat ice, pretty much, and the sun just moves in a circle around you. There's no change in the view for eight days. When you're climbing a mountain and you and you need something like you're low on motivation, you just have to look up, <laughs> and it's nighttime or it's sunrise or it's a, a new part of the hill or you're looking up at mountains or you're looking down. It changes every day, every hour. The North Pole, the sun doesn't even set or rise. It just goes around in a circle. So it's like Groundhog Day. And then when you finally reach the North Pole, you just step onto this spot and use a GPS. And you're like, okay, we're here. There's no sort of summit moment or anything like that. Um, it's really weird. You know, there's not a 
pole at the North Pole even because obviously it's sea ice is constantly moving. So it's a very kind of comical change to being in the mountains. Um, it, it felt like a bit like a carry on movie sometimes. If I'm honest. I was going to say, like, did, did it? I know there's nothing like super drastic like that final like pull onto the summit and then sit up and go wow look at that but was there was there a moment within you of that of that that final moment of going yes i've done it or, or was it just a case of oh right right we're here um the moment came when we were in the tent after when we'd reached the pole mm. and we spent a night singing oasis tracks just to our like building filling our lungs singing out in like no you know no one can hear you so just sing as loud as you can and we were singing wonder wall and all, all the other like tunes and uh and i just remember feeling like yeah this is really cool <laughs> and that was when it sort of hit me that we'd done it and we were going to be flying out from the from the, from the pole the next morning so yeah it felt good but that moment when we got there i remember someone handing me a shot of whiskey and i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> that's the last thing i want right now like give me a nice glass of wine or something but yeah just as we we look to wrap this up um i mean we could do several podcasts just on the stuff you've done which is like uh, exciting but uh not feasible at the moment but um one thing that you have said is that there's not enough female adventurers out there uh, um, at the moment and believe it or not you are one of them now so uh, with that in mind is there any sort of advice like three key points you would give to anyone else listening who has an ambition that they want to go after yeah um my advice would be look for other women in the space because they are there we're just not as as seen as the men you know we're we're not on TV like the Leveson Woods and the Ant Wiltons and the Ben Fogels. And, you know, we, there's no woman that's ever had her own adventure TV show still. And this is something that so I was pushing for 10 years ago. You know, it was like, who's going to be the first female Bear Grylls? My God, we've moved on from Bear Grylls now. There's been so many men that have come along since. When, and it's not like women aren't pitching for, for TV we, we are all the time and uh, it's just that no major kind of things come up and there are many we could debate about that for probably a few hours yeah um, we could do another podcast on it I mean I, mean, yeah, I think it's ridiculous yeah. that they'll 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 take the chance that you might climb Everest and get to the top but they won't take a chance on a on a tv contract it's just yeah on so many levels it's just nuts yeah it's just it I just don't I think I don't know. I, I can't, I can't, I can't put words into sort of commissioner's mouths, but I, mm. you know, I do think it's just a, a lack of appetite for, for risk. And, um, but I, but the women are out there, you know, and social media is such a great place to start. There's a young, um, I mean, I'm now a mother of a two year old, you know, I feel so out of the world right now dealing with a baby, but um, there are so many great women um, that are coming through that are doing like way more cool stuff than, than I ever did. Uh, so find them. And um, secondly, just remember that you just, you, the, the outdoors world was in my time um, quite macho. And I don't think that the machoism serves men or women. I don't think necessarily that men really like that kind of macho boisterous culture either. And you don't have to be a part of that to be in the mountains. Uh, or in the outdoors full stop it's, it's not actually like that when you when you get into that world 
and uh, finally like you don't you, d you don't have to be a superhuman athlete either to do this stuff you just as I was told in the very beginning when I started climbing it's just stepping stones you start small um so yeah I think I think like seeking out those those role models or those peers and um just being mindful that it's not this like totally chauvinistic world even though in some instances it is but you know the guys don't even like it either and finally just mm. start small and build your way up perfect and just before we ask a couple of wrap-up questions last big one which is, which is you've had a brilliant mountaineering career so far and you've been to the north pole if you could relive just one moment what would that moment would that be without a doubt in 2012 um two years after i climbed everest i i went back to everest that they climbed a mountain next to it called lotzi and they're joined so you actually go to everest base camp you climb the everest route and then on the last day you split and you go up to the summit of lotzi and everyone else goes to the summit of everest so you can literally see the climbers as they get to the summit of everest from the top of lotzi and that was a really important day for me because as i've mentioned to you already um on the after the summit of everest i fell on the way down and it could have been deadly but it wasn't thankfully mm. um and i really kind of beat myself up about that for a long time after i felt like it was a stupid mistake i felt like i put my teammates at risk and for the following two years it's sort of started out in quite a deep dark hole of depression really of like I can't believe I let that happen but then that turned into well what am I going to do about it and Lotsi was the end of that journey of like finding confidence again and learning the skills I needed um, and we went to Lotsi it was um, a terrible season uh, lots of bad weather lots of rock fall um, we were very convinced we weren't going to make it to the summit. Lots of other teams pulled out for the same reasons because of the weather and the avalanches. But we stuck with it and we reached the top and it was just the most incredible moment. Lotsi is a wall and you climb on the south side. And when you get to the top, uh, the sun rises on the other side. So you're in the complete freezing cold, frigid darkness as you climb. And then sunrise, you sort of, start to get onto the very top bit but you can't see the sun and I remember I was the only I was you know the first person to reach the summit that morning my team the rest of my team were behind me and I pulled myself up over this edge and the sun just hit me in the face and it was just stunning um and I actually remember like screaming with joy and I remember radioing down to uh, our logistics guy Henry Todd at base camp and um, just saying to him like oh, Henry I wish you could see this it's, it's so beautiful and he said Benita I'm right there with you and I just was like oh, this is the best you know it was the best moment of my life really just to kind of be up there after everything that I'd been through and then to have a really tough expedition um, it was so special so that's yeah incredible. that would be it yeah that's incredible so, so just a couple of quick easy easy questions um sure. if you had perfect conditions right now where would you climb where would you go and explore i would actually go rock climbing with my with my husband now um coronavirus is like been a really horrible time because we have not been able to travel and 
Um, so yeah, I would probably go somewhere really hot and far away and tropical and, uh, and go, go rock climbing abroad somewhere because let's face it, rock climbing in the UK in winter, I don't know. It's not my vibe. <laughs> I've done enough cold stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think you take that box. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then last question is where can we keep up to date with all your adventures and exp- explorations going forward? Uh, well, I'm not exactly good at updating the blog, so I think probably the best place to find me would be Instagram or uh, Twitter. Perfect. Well, I'll put all three of them in the show notes anyway, so if anyone wants to click along and have a look, they can. But uh, Benita, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Get in touch and send us your thoughts on btmtravelpod at gmail.com. Like and follow the podcast on social media with the links in the show notes and below. I hope you have a fantastic day and I will see you in the next one.